I'm glad to be back with you. We've talked about the past two nights. The first night we looked at kind of unpacking what is the Bible, you know, from a big picture view and, and seeing it as it's, it's a treasure. It's like the surface of the earth, right? You don't have to uh, dig deep to survive on the surface of the earth. But if you want treasure, you do have to dig deep because that's where the good stuff is buried. And we talk about scripture being like that. And, and the digger, the more we, the deeper we dig into scripture, the more treasure there is to find. And you'll never run out. That's the thing. You'll never exhaust the wealth of scripture. You will always find something new. And then we also looked at the overall story, right? We talked about how it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. You don't just pick up random pieces and start throwing them down on the table. You build the edges, and then from the edges, you work your way in. When you come across something you don't understand, like in a jigsaw puzzle, if you see a piece and you don't know what to do with that piece or where it fits, do you throw it in the trash can? No. You set it aside, or you put it in the general area where you think it fits best, but then you know that the more you put other pieces in place, eventually that piece is going to fit. Well, it's like that with Bible study. You come across a Bible passage, you're reading a story, a passage, and it doesn't make sense. You don't know what to do with it. Well, you can do what some people do and say, well, this must not be from God. This must be man's fallen words or man's you know, uh, own thoughts about God. You can do that, but what's better is to say, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired. I don't know what to do with this passage. So I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to continue studying, and I'm going to continue reading around it in its context and, 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 and learning more about this story. I keep doing this because I can see what you guys see there. I see it behind you. So you keep learning about this story, and eventually those pieces that you couldn't really make fit, they start to fit. The more you read scripture, the more you understand scripture, the more you understand scripture, the more the parts that stuck out to you at first eventually fall into place. And it's an ongoing cycle, lifelong. And so we talked about how the story of the Bible was on the left-hand side here, the story of the Old Testament, was that God called this people, starting with Abram and his descendants, and they were the people of Israel. God called them and says, you're going to be my light to the nations. You're going to be how everything that went wrong in the beginning gets put back on track. And ultimately, my Knowledge of me, relationship, that gulf between God and the nations is going to be bridged by Israel. And so in the Old Testament, they were, God says, if you obey my commandments, if you keep my covenant, which is what the little tablets there represent, if you keep my covenant relationship, not keep the rules, but keep the relationship, then you'll be a kingdom of priests. Is how God says it in Exodus 19 and 20. You, uh, what does a priest do in, in the Old Testament world? Well, a priest stands between the worshiper and the deity. Because in the ancient world, they did not believe you can just barge into the throne room of heaven and start talking to God. That was unheard of. If you wanted the gods to be on your side, you had to do something to make the gods notice you and make them want to help you. And that's what a priest was for. A priest knew the secret arts, the magic words, the incantations to say so that the gods would listen to your petition. That's what a priest did in the world. This is all before the Bible time in, in, the, in the pagan world. And God tells Israel, you 
are going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a nation of priests. You collectively, we would say, y'all are going to be my priests in this world. That was Israel's calling. But we saw how Israel failed in that calling because they rejected God. They broke the covenant relationship and they refused to turn back century after century after century. And so even when God sent his punishment, even when he had them banished from the land, they still refused to repent. And so God told them while they were in exile, I'm going to make a new covenant. We're going to do this thing. My plan is going to happen, but it's going to be different. In the new covenant, it's going to be not a, my law on stone tablets, but it's going to be, I'm going to put my spirit in you and write my law in your hearts. And this is what we see the New Testament picking up on. And in the New Testament, instead of Israel being the nation that God uses to bless the world, what we see in the New Testament is this guy named Jesus who comes along and he starts saying things and doing things that only make sense if somehow this person, Jesus, is also Israel. It only makes sense. The things Jesus says and does only make sense if Jesus somehow is the embodiment of Israel. Why? Because Israel is just as sinful as the nations. And Paul writes in this letter called the Book of Romans, he spends the whole first three, four, five chapters showing how Israel, who prided themselves on being God's chosen people, no, you're just as in need of salvation as the nations because you've gone astray. And so he walks them through how the Old Testament itself teaches Israel that they had gone astray and that God would then send this figure we looked at last night called the servant. And the servant would, would be Israel in one sense, but he would also rescue Israel in another sense. And it didn't make sense at the time. They couldn't understand it. They didn't understand it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and starts saying and doing things as if he is Israel. So in Matthew chapter 2, we can do a whole study on how Matthew presents this theme. I'll just pull one example. In Matthew chapter 2, remember Jesus, before he's born, or when, he, when he's born, uh, God appears to Joseph in a dream says, get, take the child and go down to Egypt because Herod's seeking to kill him. So Joseph gets up, takes Mary, takes the child, they go down to Egypt. And Matthew says this really interesting thing. He says, and so it was fulfilled what the prophet said, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's what Matthew says. So Jesus, as a baby going down into Egypt, fulfilled what the prophet said, out of Egypt I call my son. And if you have a Bible, which whenever you hear a preaching or do a Bible study, bring a Bible <laughs> or grab one in front of you. They're right here. We saw the first night how incredible what we have in our hands really is. Well, if you, whatever Bible you have, if you turn to Matthew 2.15, you will see a little footnote in your Bible when he says, and thus was fulfilled what the prophet said, out of Egypt I called my son. And there will be a little footnote or, or a mark or a cross-reference of some type, most likely, if you have a good Bible. And it will say, 
it will point you back to the book of Hosea. And so if you flip back in the book of Hosea, you're reading along, and you read this passage where Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved them, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called to them, the more they went astray, and they worshipped and sacrificed to Baal. Now, in that Old Testament setting, Israel is God's firstborn son, the nation of Israel. And he's talking about, Hosea is telling Israel, as a baby nation, they came out of Egypt as God's firstborn son. But the more God called to them, the more they turned astray. That's what Hosea says. So how does Jesus fulfill that? It's not even a prediction. What Jesus does in the New Testament, in that instance, and in many others like it, is Jesus is reliving Israel's history in himself. Israel, as a baby nation, metaphorically speaking, came up out of Egypt and entered into the Promised Land. Jesus, literally, as a baby, came out of Egypt and back into the Promised Land. Jesus' whole life the fancy seminary word for it is recapitulation. He's recapitulating. He's reenacting Israel's entire story in his ministry. And this starts to make sense of why Jesus does things that he does and says things that he says. He comes out of Egypt as a baby, just like Israel did as a nation. He crosses the waters of the Jordan at his baptism, where his cousin John baptizes him, just like Israel did. But Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Remember that story in Joshua? Well, Jesus goes out of the land, through the Jordan River, out of the land, into the wilderness, where he's tested and tempted. Israel came into the land, and they got it wrong, time after time after time. So Jesus, born in the land, Jesus goes out and says, I'm going to go back, and we're going to get this right. So he's tempted, and he's tested in the wilderness. Israel was tested in the wilderness. How long? 40 years. You know why they were tested for 40 years? Because the spies that had been sent into the land to take the land were in the land for 40 days and 40 nights, and they brought back an unfavorable report and got the people to get riled up and, and try to overthrow Moses and go back into slavery. And so God said, okay, for your disobedience, you are going to die in the desert and your children are going to be the ones who inherit the land. You missed your chance to, to, to take hold of the covenant promises, but my plan is still going to go on. You're just not going to be a part of it. And that generation died in the wilderness. Well, Jesus goes out into that very same desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's tempted, and he's tested, but he doesn't fail. He gets it right. And there's some cool stuff that goes on. Remember I talked about last night, when you know the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, it's like seeing it in HD versus black and white on a little TV. Well, when you know the Old Testament, you start to see things like, hey, Jesus, when he's out in the wilderness in this area, 
he's being tested and Satan throws scripture at him. He quotes from the Psalms and, you know, if you're really the son of God, do this. And every time Jesus responds by quoting scripture back, but he doesn't just quote any scripture back. Every response that Jesus gives to Satan in this wilderness area on the east side of the Jordan is from the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy was Moses' final sermon to the people of Israel in that exact same spot, telling them how to walk and how to live and how to be and how to remember the covenant. So Jesus is going to the very spot where Israel failed, and he's quoting from the very book that was written in that very spot by Moses. And when Jesus is tested and tempted, that is what he draws from. Why? Because he Unlike God's first firstborn son, metaphorically, he, God's literal firstborn son, is not going to go astray. He is going to come back. He's going to take the destiny. You know how we say in football, when you're watching Georgia play, I hope you were watching Georgia play, and they're down, and, and you've got a superstar quarterback, right? Whoever the pick your, it doesn't matter, or a superstar running back. I'm going to go with Herschel Walker, because that's the era that I was uh, coming up in as a little kid. And what do they say about Herschel? When, when they're down and, and the game's on the line, he's got to do what? He's got to take the team on his back. Or the quarterback, you know, from or, or, or any of the recent one. David, but who was it? David Green or something. I mean, I'm trying to think of all the Georgia quarterbacks that, that have been around. They say they got to take the team and put the team on their back and carry them to victory. That's an analogy. It's a term that they use in sports. Jesus does that with Israel. He takes Israel's entire identity and puts it on his back and gets them to the goal line. Jesus is doing Israel what Israel could not do for themselves. He does it again. John 2, Jesus talks about himself as the temple. He says, you know, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And people are like, wait a minute, this temple took, you know, decades. How are you going to build it in three days? And John says, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Well, that's revelation concept because temples were where you would go to experience a relationship with God. And so Jesus is saying, it's not going to be in a building anymore. It's me. I am where heaven and earth are going to meet. I am the spot where God and humanity are going to join together. It's me, not a building. And he even says about the temple, this whole thing, you see this whole thing, it's all coming down. There's not even going to be one stone left on top of the other. And there's going to be a time coming when people will not worship on this mountain, that mountain, but God's people are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the, Jesus was making, what he was saying was absolutely scandalous. Because the, the temple was Israel's identity. He was doing the equivalent of standing in front of a room of war veterans and burning an American flag. Probably not a good idea, right? Whatever your views are on politics and nations and all, it's probably not a good idea to stand in a room full of veterans and burn the American flag because of what it means to them deep down. Well, that's the equivalent of what the temple meant to the Jewish people in Jesus' day. It was their entire identity. 
The same thing with their food laws and their food rules, like who they could eat with and what they could eat and couldn't eat. This was their national identity. And Jesus comes along and he, he all of a sudden says, hey, you know that thing that you're so devoted to that you think God is, is all about? Well, it's really me. How scandalous is that if he's wrong? No, there's, no, there's no wonder that they wanted to put him to death because he was claiming to be everything they had ever been taught that they should pledge their allegiance to. And he was saying, I'm the fulfillment of it. It is, it is mind-blowing when we know the Old Testament and the world of the people of Israel, the things Jesus had the nerve to say. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We think that's nice, poetic, metaphorical language. It makes for a good hymn or a good song. In the Old Testament, Israel was the vine. Isaiah and the other prophets talk about God planting a vineyard. And in those parables, Israel is the vineyard. And God appoints them to bear fruit, but they don't bear fruit. And so God says, I'm going to send in people to tear up the vineyard. Jesus then comes along and he says, I'm the true vine. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. That's what Israel was supposed to do by keeping the commandments of the Torah. That's how they would bear fruit. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We're at a paradigm shift in this moment in time. And I am the culmination of everything you have ever thought of as being related to God. It's, just, it's mind-blowing, really. And again, we looked at you know Isaiah 49, you read about Israel, this servant, and the servant is, saves Israel, but the servant also is Israel. And how does that work? Isaiah never clears it up. The Old Testament authors never clear it up. And then Jesus comes along and starts to say things and do things that only make sense if somehow Jesus is Israel. If Jesus is the seed of Abraham. But once we see that's what's going on, then when you open your New Testament, you can't miss it. You see it everywhere. You start to see things that make sense that you've just read for years. And, well, okay, that's a nice thing. Like, like think about this. How can you be in Jesus? How can somebody be in Christ? How can you be in another person? Right? That, what does that even mean? Well, if Jesus, the person, the same, is also Israel, the people, in some way that we can barely comprehend, then we can be in him just like ancient Israelites could say, I'm in Israel. They are part of the people of God. Why? Through their covenant faith. They're in Israel. Well, that's what the New Testament authors, all of whom were Jewish followers, raised with this Old Testament, they then start speaking of being in Jesus. And it, it, it doesn't make sense at first until we see this key. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the people of God because all of the people in the world failed. All the people in the world were corrupted by sin. God himself had to come and take on human flesh in order to live a life under the law to free us from the penalty that we rightly deserve for not living up to the law. 
because of our rebellion, because of our sinfulness, because of our hard-heartedness, just like Israel in the Old Testament. So that whether we're Gentiles or whether we're Jews, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's one thing everybody who's honest knows. Everybody who's honest knows that there's such a thing as good, and I don't always live up to it. And so something has to be done about that. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, something is going to be done about it. And it's happening right now in me. And so we saw that this covenant relationship that the prophets talked about, this idea that one day God would, would renew Israel and rebuild Israel and make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. Those passages we looked at last night, we saw that there's going to be a new covenant. And when it happens, it's going to include Gentiles. It's going to include people outside of ethnic Israel. Why? Because all the way back to Genesis, what God told Abraham was, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, God's, God called Israel not because he likes the Jews best. I mean, Deuteronomy flat out says it. God says, it's not because I like you guys better. It's because I made a promise to your ancestor, Abraham. That promise was through you, through your offspring, your seed is the literal word. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So Israel was chosen to be God's rescue line, to be God's life preserver to a dying, drowning world. But Israel cut their own lifeline. Israel stabbed their own lifeboat. So that it sank. Israel, whatever metaphor you want to use, they were the ones. And so God said, but I'm going to save the world through Israel because I promised Abraham that I would do that. How is he going to keep his promise if Israel themselves are going astray? The prophets give us the idea or give us the image. He's going to come and do it for you. He's going to come and this servant is going to be Israel and also redeem Israel. And so God's promise will come to fruition. And when God does it, it's going to be bigger than Israel. It's going to be the world. That's God's goal from the beginning was to reach the nations. God is a missional God. He's always been a missional God. And so the New Testament then presents Jesus as the answer to that and the means by which all of us Gentiles get to enter into Israel. We don't have time to even go into a fraction of these passages. I'm just putting these up here. If you're note takers or iPhone picture takers and you want to have these just so on your own, maybe you're a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader and you want to do a study. Well, here are some passages that you can go and look at and see that these are all from the Old Testament. None of these are New Testament passages. And they're all about Gentiles coming to knowledge of God, the God of Israel. And some of them are even about Gentiles, the ones with stars by them, or even about Gentiles being considered as if they are part of Israel which is just mind-blowing in the terms of the Old Testament faith. Because in the Old Testament, being in Israel meant who your parents were and what uh, rules and observances you kept as part of your culture. But in the New Testament, being in Israel means being in the Messiah, having faith in Jesus. And I want to read this so you can hear this. This is straight from the New Testament. 
This is Ephesians chapter 2. The whole chapter of Ephesians 2, Paul is telling the Ephesians, who are mostly Gentiles, how they used to be pagan Gentiles, godless, worshiping idols, pagans, all that. But now, because of their faith in Israel's Messiah, look what he says. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. You could almost see him pointing at himself saying, us Jews. Because remember, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. For through him, and the him is Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, therefore, because of that, however you want to say it, you, and he's talking to Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. And we don't mean aliens like Martians. Aliens like immigrants. In modern translations, they say immigrants. You're no longer foreigners. You're no longer immigrants, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. He could not be any clearer. If you have faith in Israel's Messiah, you have been brought into God's Israel. He's talking to the Galatians. He says the same thing. Galatians chapter 3. He's even more explicit in Galatians chapter 3. He says, you are all, and he's talking to Galatians, Gentile followers of Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into the Messiah, that means you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptized into Jesus, have clothed yourself with the Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Jesus. And look at this. This is a bombshell passage for understanding what God's doing big picture. If you belong to Christ, the Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed. Some translations say Abraham's offspring or Abraham's children and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise God made to Abraham. That through your seed, through your offspring, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we looked at them last night, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, what Paul is telling the Galatians is that has already started happening. And they were wondering, because the Galatians were being told, you're not ethnically Jewish, so you're not fully the people of God. You're, you're Gentiles, you're in the family, sort of, you know, God lets you, but you really need to go a little further. You need to become ethnically Jewish. You need to, you know, circumcision and observe the food laws and the holidays, and we see this a lot today in these various Hebrew roots movements, where people are kind of like, you got to call God a certain name, a Hebrew name, and, and you've got to keep the feasts, and you got to keep Sabbath, and you got to do all this stuff, you know, because people have trouble believing that just being in Jesus is enough. But that's exactly what Paul tells the Galatians. If you are in the Messiah, your Bible say Christ, because Christ and Messiah is the same thing. It just means anointed one. If you are in the Messiah, you are Abraham's seed. So think about that. You hear people teaching all the time. Uh, they'll, they'll just start talking about, you know, well, God says, uh, you know, we, we, we got to, God says to Abraham's 
and his offspring, those who will bless you all bless, those who curse you all curse. So, so therefore, we got to bless the Jewish people. we got to bless the nation of Israel. You, you hear this preached all the time. And the question I always have is, well, of course we should bless the Jewish people. I mean, because they are created in God's image, and, and anti-Semitism is a horrible, evil, heinous sin that should have no place among God's people. We worship the Jewish Messiah. We cannot be anti-Semitic and expect to remain in God's good graces. But when people start saying, so therefore we got to support this country, Israel, because those who bless you all bless, those who curse you all curse, I say, wait a minute, time out. Who did God make that promise to? He made it to Abraham and his seed. Well, according to the New Testament, who is Abraham's seed? Anybody who's in the Messiah. God doesn't have two separate peoples. You got Christians and you got the Jews and they have Moses and we have Jesus and we're both on our path to God. God has never operated that way. He's had one covenant people and it's all been put on the back of, it's all been wrapped in the identity of his son, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. If Jesus is not Israel's Messiah, he's nobody's Messiah. If he's not the Jewish savior, he's not saving anybody. But if he is the Jewish savior, then he also therefore is the Gentile savior as well, because the seed of Abraham is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. That's our history. So when we read the Old Testament, we're reading our history. We're reading our family tree. Now we're adopted, but anybody in here who's ever adopted a child or knows someone who's adopted a child will tell you that child is just as much part of the family as a natural born child. And that's exactly what the New Testament says. Anyone who believes and puts their faith in and is baptized into Israel's Messiah, that is the mark of their identity. Not their parentage, not their lineage, not their language, certainly not their skin color, not their ethnogeographic place of origin. None of that matters. Jew, Greek, male, female, doesn't matter. If you're in Jesus, you are in Israel. And so this is, this is God's plan all along. Some people, if the name for this is fulfillment theology. Is that, you know, there's dispensational theology, there's covenant theology, but this is kind of like the, the more biblical, I would suggest, way is no fulfillment theology. Jesus fulfills what Israel was in the Old Testament. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the servant of God, the Messiah of Israel, he is that. So if we want to be part of what God's doing in the world, we have to be in Messiah. And if we are in the Messiah, then he is dwelling in us. And we, therefore, are part of that kingdom of priests that will help God reach the nations. And it will culminate when this Messiah, servant, seed, uh, king of kings, Lord of lords, when he returns. We just said it in the Apostles' Creed. Sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to what? Judge the quick and the dead. And quick just means living. It doesn't mean fast. It means alive. He will come back and judge the living and the dead. And that is what we are waiting on. That is where we find ourselves in this story. Our king has been crowned. 
and he is reigning in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, but he's not done on this earth because we are the means by which he is expanding his kingdom. And when he is done expanding his kingdom, and we don't know when that's going to be, and we don't know what it's going to look like, but when he's done, he's going to return and claim his throne on earth. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we wait for is the return of the king. And so we see this in a couple of passages in the New Testament. I'm going to give you, we're going to go through three of these real quick, real quick, because this is the hope. This is what we wait for. When Jesus in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, all of it discourse, Jesus is talking about his disciples are like, oh, look at these buildings in the temple. It's amazing. And Jesus says, yeah, it's all going to burn. It's all coming down. This whole Jerusalem thing is going to be destroyed. And his disciples are like, what? He just drops a bombshell on him and leaves. And they follow him out of the temple and they walk over to the Mount of Olives, which you can stand on and look across the, the Kidron Valley and you can see the whole city of Jerusalem. And they say, when's this going to happen and how are we going to know? And so Jesus goes into this, what's called the Olivet Discourse. And he's talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, the city Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed by Rome. And it's going to happen within the lifetime of the disciples. So he's telling them and he's warning them so that they will know to get out when they start seeing these signs. But scriptural prophecy often has paradigmatic significance, meaning that it, it presents something in a localized manner that also foreshadows an even bigger fulfillment of that same type of thing. And so that's how a number of people who read the Olivet Discourse, they go, Jesus, yes, he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, but he was talking about it in the language of what we can also expect on a worldwide scale when he returns. And so that's where this passage picks up. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son." Only the Father. Now pause right here. How many of you have heard somebody tell you when the end of the world is going to happen? Who remembers 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988? I'm old enough to remember that. I was getting nervous. I was in second grade, and I was getting nervous in 1988. Well, this is the, the rapture's coming. Jesus is coming back. End of the world. Came and it went. Well, just a few years ago, Harold Camping toured around the country with a bunch of people saying the rapture is going to happen on this day, the end of the world on this day. Their website was called youcanknow.com. I mean, think about what ridiculous, foolish blasphemy that is. When Jesus flat out says, no one knows. Let me just say this as an aside. The real clever hucksters, the real clever religious cult leaders, they say, well, he says about the day or the hour, no one knows. But he doesn't say the year. So we can tell you what year he's going to come back, and we can tell you what month it's going to happen in. We, we won't get specific on the day or out. Those people, are, I give them credit for ingenuity, but everything else they're speaking is pure nonsense. So the first thing, just know, if somebody tells you they know when the world's going to end, when Jesus is going to return, no, they don't. They're a liar. You can safely tune out anything else they're going to tell you about the Bible. But he goes on, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and did what? Took them away. 
So here's Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Let me give you an illustration. The days of Noah. Everybody, this is the days of Noah. Everybody's hanging out. They're eating, drinking, marrying. Oh, look at dumb Noah. They're building a boat. We're in the middle of the ancient Near East. There's no water for a while. What are you doing, Noah? You're wasting your time. Blah, blah, partying, all that, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Then what happened? The flood came, took them all away. Who was left after the flood waters receded? Who was left? Noah and his family. They were saved from God's judgment. Who was taken away? The evildoers, the wicked. And what took them away? The flood. I'm making this very clear. This is like children's sermon lesson time because I want everybody to see this because this is one of the most misunderstood, backwards interpreted passages in the entire Bible. The flood took away the bad people. The good people were left behind. Look what Jesus says. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in a handmill. Now, in a field in Israel, if you go there today, you can see fields everywhere. Don't think of fields like South Georgia fields. You're not driving tractors around fields in Israel. Most fields in Israel are about the size of this room, maybe smaller. And they're olive groves. I mean, there's some big ones to the north, but in, in, in and around Jerusalem, it's terraced and, you know, just these small little, and the judgment of God is going to be so precise that two people in the same field, working in the same field, one will be taken away in judgment, the other will remain. And then Jesus narrows it down more and says, two women will be grinding with a handmill. Well, you have to sit face to face when you grind with a handmill. Two people, it's a two-person job. And you're literally in the same vicinity. One will be taken, the other will be left. So Jesus is saying God's judgment is going to be precise enough to not just sweep away everybody willy-nilly. God knows his own. And he knows the righteous and he knows the wicked. And even if they're working at the same hand mill, the righteous will be spared, the wicked will be taken. So therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. This is what Jesus says. now. If the flood took people in Noah's day who were wicked and the righteous, Noah and his family, were left behind, then in the day of Jesus' return, do you want to be taken or do you want to be left? You don't want to be taken. This passage has nothing to do with a rapture. This passage is about God's judgment. And you want to be left after God's judgment. Because to be taken is to be removed from this earth forever. To be left is to remain like Noah. Jesus does this in a number of his parables. The parable of the good fish and the bad fish. It's like judgment is going to be like angels, let, fishermen let down a net and they pull up all kinds of fish. And then what do they do? They sit on the shore and they separate the good fish from the bad fish. And the bad fish are thrown away. The good fish are brought in. Or the parable of the wheat and the weeds it says, no, no, God, God's going to, the angels are going to come, they're going to harvest, and they're going to sit down and they're going to separate the weeds from the wheat. And the weeds will be thrown out. Because that's what you do with weeds. You throw them out, burn them up. The wheat will remain. 
all of the parables of Jesus, the return of the king, when he comes back, this is what our Baptist brothers and sisters get right. When he comes back, he's coming back to judge. And a good old fire and brimstone sermon, I'm not against it. Because some people need to get right with Jesus. Some of you in this room may need to get right with Jesus. You may have been coming here for 50 years and still need to get right with Jesus. Because this church is not Jesus. Jesus is in and among us, and he's reigning in heaven, and he's going to return. And, and if you're not filled with his spirit, and if you're not in relationship with him, then guess what? Just like the people in the days of Noah, that flood's coming. Only this time it's not going to be a flood. It's going to be a fire. There's another image. We, we, we won't go into much of this. But when Paul's talking about this same thing, he's talking about the return of Jesus, and he tells people, uh, to be ready, the Thessalonians, because they're wondering, this is what Thessalonians were wondering is, hey, some of us have died, some of our family members have died, and they were waiting on Jesus' return, and now they're dead. When Jesus comes back, are they going to miss out? That's a legitimate question. And so Paul writes them, and he, he speaks to them about what's going to happen. He says, now we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who've fallen asleep, and that's what he describes those who died as those who fall asleep. Why? Because it's temporary. He says, so that you will grieve as the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Thus also God will bring those who have fallen asleep through Jesus together with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who remain until the Lord's coming, will not possibly precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, just because somebody's died doesn't mean they're going to miss out on the blessing. Just because we happen to be alive when Jesus comes back, we don't get a bigger prize. If anything, it's the other way around. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Come to judge the quick and the dead. Will descend from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Now, is this a secret, invisible, quiet thing? Is anything about this secret? Is anything about the voice of the archangel, the, uh, the shout of command, the trumpet of God, are those private secret things? No. He says, Jesus is going to come back and the dead in Christ will rise. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Resurrection of the body. That's what this is about. Not Jesus' body. Yeah, we believe in Jesus' body was raised, but he was the first fruits. We believe in the resurrection of our bodies. Why? Because what we saw last night, the creator, God went to all this trouble to create a good creation and then sin ruined it. God's not going to let sin have the last laugh. God's going to restore and redeem. He's going to purify the earth. He's going to cleanse it from all of the bad, all of the evil, all of the fallenness. And what remains, what's left behind is what God has always wanted. People bodily dwelling in his creation in communion with him and paul is saying and guess what not even death can thwart that plan so you've lost a loved one you've stood at the graveside and cried when you've buried somebody who meant more to you than anybody in this world well guess what you didn't hug them for the last time you'll get to do it again they were gone too soon they've been taken too soon guess what you're going to see him again. That is why we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve. Even Jesus cried at Lazarus's tomb, and Jesus was going there specifically to raise him from the dead, but yet he still cried. Why? Because death hurts. It's real. We've all been to funerals. 
They're not fun events. No matter how beautiful we make them, no matter how nice and worth service a funeral can be, there's still grief. There's still tears because death is still the enemy and it still stings. But it doesn't destroy for those who are in Christ. And so Jesus says, so then we who are alive, the ones of us who remain, will be caught up. And he uses this phrase that has a very specific meaning. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds for a meeting with the Lord in the air. We will to be together with the Lord always. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We don't have time to get into, I'm, I'm pushing the envelope right now. I know we've gone a little bit late. We don't have time to get into all of the ins and outs, but let me just give you the image. In the ancient world, including Thessalonica, which is the city that Paul's writing this to, when a king or an emperor or a general who has had a victory is coming back into the city that he is the ruler of, there's this thing that happens and it's called uh, an apontesis or apontesis. My Greek is uh, Southern Greek. Uh, and so at an apontesis, all of the city goes out into the countryside, lines the road with banners and singing celebration and waits for the arrival, which was called a parousia, of this conquering victorious ruler. And when that person comes back, everyone who's waiting then turns and follows them in a train of procession of celebration back into the city to the temple or the throne, wherever they're going, and there's this massive celebration. Why? Because the king has returned victorious. That's a known thing in the ancient world. The Greeks did, Romans did it, the Greeks did it, they did it in the Old Testament. It's called the Apontesis. It's this big celebration. Okay? It's a, it's a concept. And what Paul is saying here is that's what's going to happen, but we're not going out into the countryside to meet a king who's going to come back from winning a battle on the earth. Our king is not fighting battles on the earth. King is reigning in heaven. So when we go to meet our king, when we have our meeting, our apontesis, where are we going to go welcome him? In the clouds. Why? Because he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from thence, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So he's not coming back from overseas. He's coming back from heaven. So if we're going to go out to Apontesis, if we're going to go meet him, it's going to be in the air. But just like they would do, we're going to then follow him back. So the dead are going to be raised. We're all living and dead. Resurrection is happening. Our glorified bodies, we're welcoming the returning king. There's joy, there's celebration, and he is coming back to reign on the earth. And so we'll be together with him always. And here's the fun thing. When an apontesis was going to happen, usually somebody would go throughout the town and say, hey, the king's coming, the king's coming, the emperor's coming, so-and-so is coming, get ready. And everybody would start getting ready. They'd start making the banners and the processions there. You know what that was called when, 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 when you were kind of ushered along with all the crowds? It was called being caught up. If there was a big crowd, it was like if everybody rushed out of this building all at once and you're in the middle and you're kind of getting moved along with the crowd, you're getting caught up. That was, that's the term. It's called harpazo is the Greek word. It, it means to be caught up. Literally, it means to be grabbed. 
But metaphorically, in the context of an apontason, it means to be caught up in the crowd, in the glory, in the hype, in the excitement, and to, yes, we're all on board. Paul is using both of those terms to tell his Thessalonian listeners, when Jesus comes back, you're not going to miss it. And your dead relatives and loved ones, they're not going to miss it either. Because their identity is in the Messiah, and the Messiah has conquered death. Nobody in the ancient world had anything close to that concept in their religions. This is a uniquely Christian view. And that's what he's saying. There's no invisible rapture. Nobody's getting pulled up out of baby carriages and, and planes and cars crashing and all this stuff you see in these rapture movies to try to scare you into things. No, no, none of that. This is a complete misreading. This is the resurrection. So the, the, the rapture, the catching up, yeah, it's going to happen. But it's not going to happen and we just get beamed off for heaven for a number of years until all this bad stuff happens on earth and then this timetable and then all this. You've probably all heard this preached before. I know I have growing up. It just kind of seeps into our consciousness. But when you actually read scripture in its context, he's coming back. And he's coming back to judge. And this brings us full circle. This is the last passage we'll look at because I am literally out of time. This brings us full circle to where we started Sunday night. Peter writing, and he's telling about what's going to happen. And he's, this should say Second Peter. That's a typo. It shouldn't say first. He says, the bottom verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, just like Jesus said. And then heavens will pass away with a loud noise. No secret, not invisible, loud noise. The elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed, laid bare, revealed. That's what is going to happen. When Jesus comes to judge the quick and the dead, it's likened to a fire, a refining fire. Anybody in here ever do any blacksmithing? If you've ever seen it done, what they do, you have this slag, this, this impure metal, this ore. What do they do? They put it through fire. What does the fire do? Does it destroy the precious metal? No, it destroys the non-precious parts. The dross, the stuff that's not pure, gets burned away. So what remains? The precious metal. That's the image when Jesus returns. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be fire. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be a dissolving of the elements, but not random destruction and not God raining down this terror so that people will be running around and screaming. The, you know, it's a refining fire so that those who are ultimately and fully opposed to God, they will not get the last word and will be removed just like the, the perishable is removed by the refining fire. And what's left is the pure metal. What's left, like Noah and his family, are the righteous. What's left are those who are in Jesus. So tonight, this is where at a revival I'm supposed to stamp the floor and say, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Um, ask that question for sure. Let me ask you another question. If Jesus were to return tonight, are you going to be burned away or are you going to remain? If you're in him, you're going to remain. If you're not in him, burned away. And so that's the choice we make daily. He returns. So Peter, I said full circle because it goes back. He says, since all these things are going to be 
called this way. What sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. In other words, since we know all this is going to happen, what sort of person ought we to be? What should we be doing in the meantime? When we're waiting for the return of the king, how should we wait? And so he says, verse 15, but in accordance with this promise, we wait for new heavens and new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you're waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And then that's what we talked about Sunday night. Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. So this brings us back. Peter's final words to his audience were, we know the king is coming back. We know he's going to judge the earth. We know that only the righteous and those who are in him will remain when he's done. So what sort of people should we be while we wait? We should be preview of coming attractions. We should be living what the earth is going to experience in fullness when Jesus returns. We should be the foretaste of that. The type of people who are a preview of coming attractions. That's what he wants his readers to do. And that's the, the message of the New Testament is that we wait for the return of the king. But we don't wait idly. We don't twiddle our thumbs. We don't max out our bank accounts. We don't say, well, it's all going to burn, so who cares what we do with the environment? No. This is God's world. This is God's creation. We are stewards. Protecting his environment, that's a biblical thing. You think if I hand somebody, if I, if I say, Andy, take my car for a week, I'll be back, and I'll come get it. Do I want him to go enter in a demolition derby? No, when I come back, I hope it's as clean as I left it. Be nice if it were cleaner. I hope it's got at least as much gas as I left in the tank. Well, why do we think we can do that with the earth? I've heard some misguided preachers teach, well, this whole world's going to burn. So who cares about the environment? Just get souls to heaven. No, no, no. A thousand times. No, this is God's creation. We steward it so that when he comes back, it's, as, as, it's in as good a shape and we are in as good a shape as we're able to present to him. That's all his. That's the story, the big picture story of the Bible. Last night and tonight. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at um, the book of Revelation in specifically because that's a very misunderstood book. And it's a book that scares a lot of people. Or it's a book that fascinates a lot of people to an unhealthy degree. And so we're going to try to walk the middle ground and and let us know because that's the book that kind of gives us i think the blueprint not for future things that are going to happen but for how we should live and for the hope that we should have revelation is the most hopeful book in the bible ironically so that's what we're going to look at tomorrow night but we but i leave tonight with we went a little bit long this is revival it's supposed to go for like four hours right um we went a little bit long but that's the story the old testament the new testament they tell one story of the seed of Abraham, who is reigning in heaven, who is building his family, Jew and Gentile, male, female, all of us together, and who is going to return. And all who are in him will experience that. And so the question we leave is, are you in him? Is he in you? 
Or are you just doing your own thing and coming to church because you like the music, you like the potluck, you like the people, the preacher's handsome? You know, is that what's motivating you? So only you can answer that question, but I'm going to turn it back over to the handsome preacher here. Thank you.